Autism Through Cinema. Welcome to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, investigating autistic presence and expression on screen. This podcast is brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project, based at Queen Mary, University of London, and funded by the Wellcome Trust. For more on the project, please visit our website, autism-through-cinema.org.uk, and follow us on Twitter at, at @autismcinema. If you're a fan of this podcast, please do spread the word. Leave us a review, share our episodes on social media, or just drop us an email on cinemaautism at gmail.com to let us know what you like about the show. This will be our last episode for a short while as we take a break to get ready for the Autism Through Cinema conference taking place on the 13th and 14th of January in 2023. We've had a fantastic reaction to the release of tickets for the conference and it is currently sold out. However, we do plan to record the presentations, so please keep an eye on our social media channels for more information in the coming weeks. To conclude this season of the podcast, Janet, Lillian and Georgia tackle the greatest film ever made, as voted for in the recent Sight and Sound poll. Huge thanks as ever for listening, and we very much hope that we'll have some new episodes for you in February or March of 2023. From all of us at the Autism Through Cinema Towers, we hope you've had a brilliant and divergent start to the new year. So it's my pleasure this morning to be introducing... Uh, this film by Chantal Ackerman, uh, Jean Dillman. Um, I'm going to call on uh, Lillian to actually give us the full title in its splendor in a reasonable accent. It is Jean Dillman, Vantois, Quai de Commerce, 1480, Bruxelles. More than reasonable accent, brilliant. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, Jean Dillman is the second feature film of the Belgian director Chantal Ackerman. Uh, Ackerman was born in 1950 in Brussels, in Belgium, uh, to Holocaust survivors uh, from Poland. She died in 2015. She was known for her extremely close relationship to her mother. Um, and this film is her second feature, made when she was only 24 years old. Um, it said that Ackerman, at the age of 15, saw Jean-Luc Godard's Pierre Le Fou and decided that same night to become a filmmaker her trajectory is after this. She she studied filmmaking in Brussels and then went to New York, 1971 to two, where she was exposed to a range of different avant-garde filmmakers through anth anthology film archives, um, including Stan Brakhage, Jonas Mikas, Michael Snow and Yvonne Rayner. So all of those influences come to bear on this film. Made in 1975, over five weeks, shot on location in Brussels and financed through a grant from the Belgium government of $120,000. The film is a slice of life depiction of a widowed housewife over the course of three days of her life. Uh, it's shot almost exclusively in the apartment where she lives and in some street scenes in the Brussels suburb. The main character is portrayed by uh, New Wave favourite Delphine Serig, who had worked already with uh, Marguerite Duras, with uh, Truffaut, Bunuel 
and famously with René, Alain Marené, uh, in the film last year at Marion Bad in 1961. So she was already uh, a well-known actor at this point. Um, the film is remarkable in many ways. First off, what most people mention is over three hours long, and the majority of that time is a static camera observing Jeanne, Jeanne as she completes domestic chores. Uh, in the same order, cleaning, cooking, shopping, washing, uh, scrubbing the bathtub, cleaning shoes and so on. Uh, her and her son eat in the same order uh, and speak in the same order each day. Each day she tells him not to read at the table. She does the same things after dinner and the same things in her leisure time. So there's a ritual and routine to the film. Many of these actions take place more or less in real time. For example, her preparation of food. We see her peeling potatoes, uh, preparing chicken and so on. Demonstrating perhaps for some people the tedium of such tasks or for other people the love that women expend on the care of others. All 201 minutes of the film unfurl at the same unhurried pace, revealing the minutiae of the daily routine. Um, which in the uh, description of the film by Jenny Shamaret on Senses of Cinema is described as an ethnography of domesticity. And I think that's a really nice description of, of what we see in this film. Um, its attention to detail has also uh, be compared to the novels of Marcel Proust, the sense of a thickened time of tasks accumulating a particular texture of life. Um, and that's in the work of the art historian Carol Mavel. So um, it's a film very much about doing rather than explicitly feeling or talking about feeling. Um, what, we, what we are asked to do here is watch and observe. Ackerman, it said, insisted that her film's mode of address rather than their stories alone are the locus of their feminist perspective. Uh, the style of shooting of the film is a frontally centred uh, camera where, that we watch from. Um, we get to experience long shots of her in the apartment. We get to see most of the apartment, but only a few times are we, uh, are we allowed into the bedroom. It was a film that, when it was made, was a powerful sign of the decade in which the second wave of feminism erupted into politics and film. Ackerman talks about uh, the way in which the film presents the, her mother's generation um, and talks about herself as a woman absorbed in the work and the observation of this generation. The film resists making a character study. We're not invited to be in the psychological space of the main character. We're very much positioned outside of that. And I think that's an interesting uh, feature to explore um, in the podcast when we're thinking about autism and cinema, because I think it's something that's come up before in our discussions about um, emotional connection and being inside of characters or outside of them, being slightly dis disjoined and removed from the, the kind of so-called neurotypical world um, of events within a film. In terms of the the style of shooting and working with an actor, uh, Jenny Shamrat talks about watching footage of Sarig and Ackerman working together on set 
And apparently the actor repeatedly asks Ackerman for guidance and motivation for signs of the emotional connection between um, between her as an actor and the character she's portraying. And Ackerman almost mute, says Shamrat, is vague, unspecific, not concerned with psychological depth. Instead, she's interested in the formal qualities of Seirig's gestures, the way she embodies the bourgeois housewife, um, and these gestures not simple um, acts, but quite complex ways um, of, of, of understanding how um, someone's life is working. Uh, and Shamrat argues that this that the, there was some kind of um, conflict between the actor and Ackerman in these different styles of, of acting. Ackerman famously called uh, Jean Dillman a, a feminist film, but not a militant one. And I think it remains celebrated and controversial, not least in its recent position in the, the, the top of the uh, 10 yearly Sight and Sound 100 Best Films poll, um, which is partly why we're discussing it here for its timeliness. Um, there's a lot of traction gained around uh, that poll and and this film on social media that I'm sure we will explore as we as as we go through the film this morning. Famous and infamous, a film that makes art from drudgery or a film in which nothing happens, depending on how you look at it. Uh, a film whose ending is the topic of speculation, controversy and discord, why it ends uh, in the way that it does. And a spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen the film, um, we will be talking about the ending of the film in which there is an act of, of violence. Um, and also, of course, controversial because the main character is a prostitute. So there's, there are issues about sex work and different feminist, non-feminist approaches to to that topic. So I now um, invite Lillian and Georgia to, to share their views on this film. And um, of course, why, what relationship it might have to the topic of autism, to the sensibility, the apprehension of, of the autistic in film worlds and the different ways in which we talk about it on this podcast. Thank you, Janet. That was incredibly beautiful um, and very thorough, I think, in a way that it's been quite difficult to sort of introduce this film over the last week to people because it's suddenly, as you as you said, been thrust into a spotlight that it's never before had, where it's sort of at the top of the, the sight and sound pole. Um, and I've been sort of talking to a lot of people who have never heard of this film before. I've done a couple of um, interviews with, with the BBC as well, where I'm sort of given two or three minutes to to not just talk about what the film is, but also to explain to people why it's the greatest film ever made. And it's, it's incredibly difficult to do that. So I, I think that it's nice now to have sort of, to set aside an hour and, and, and talk about this film um, with with that levity behind it, because it's it's a new form of levity that I haven't had in previously talking about Jean Dillman. Um, it's a film that I have perhaps only really had been able to have proper discussion around in an academic setting, um, which is, is something that I've sort of given a lot of thought to around this this new list that there is. And there's a lot of experimental cinema, particularly by women, um, including Meshes of the Afternoon, which is very near the top of the list, um, Cleo de Sancasset by Agnes Varda, um, and Beau Travail by Claire Denis, all of which are in the, the top 20 films. And I think that... It, it suggests a move towards 
um, an intre- a, a, a growing interest um, in, on the part of both film critics and film scholars in films made by women, but but more specifically, slow slower films made by women. Um, I voted in the, the the poll, and I voted for Jean Dillman, and part of the reason why I did so was because it's it's a film which I engage, I've engaged with so many times, and I've engaged with with Ackerman's work so many times in my in my own studies and development in my understanding of cinema. Um, and what I've always appreciated most about her films are what you were talking about in in the aspect of, of slowness and slow cinema. It's why I sort of when we were putting together the the plan for um, the, this year's episodes of, of the podcast, it was one of the films that I, I suggested we talk about because I think that it heightens um, the the sort of sensory details of, of minutiae and, and aspects of life that a lot of cinema would gloss over. There are moments in John Dillman when in any other film or in a conventional Hollywood film, there would be a cut and we would move away from um, the moment when um, someone sits down at the dinner table or or lays the table, the table is already laid ordinarily, or um, the food is already prepared and Ackerman holds the camera as well. Even when characters have left the shot and we're left with 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 the remains of it, and we we can hear sort of the footsteps of someone passing by, but we we remain within within the space always for a, for a few seconds later. I mean, I've seen the film um, quite a few times, and um, Georgia and I went to see it at, at the BFI uh, yesterday for to see the the print that they're using because the film's never been distributed in in the UK before, um, which is why. So many people haven't heard of it, and and why it's it's been a very difficult film to access in the UK for 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 many years. Um, it was previously available in America through Criterion and and the BFI. I suppose have known <laughs> that it was going to be topping the poll for some time, and have sort of managed to to get together um, the rights and and a print to be able to 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 show it in in the UK um, early next year. So it's going to be. It's going to be screened a couple of times at the BFI in January, and then it's also going to be screened in February and March as part of them screening all of the films that are in um, the top 100. And it was it was so interesting seeing this print in a, in a not not in a um, public cinema. It was in one of the screening rooms for um, the press, but it was um, it was such a radically different experience to me seeing this film in a cinema environment rather than watching it with a class at university or on my own in my room or on, on a laptop or projected through my own projector. It was it was so strange being sort of in an environment where one is forced to entirely pay attention, which is the nature, I suppose, of, of cinematic screening, is that you are sort of immersed in darkness and and bound rigidly to the seat that you're in. Um and and, una- and unable to sort of lose one's focus, except if one was to to fall asleep, which I I, I don't think Ackerman would be <laughs> too too upset by. And I always think of Lucretia Martel talking about her films and sort of saying that she sees it as a high compliment if someone falls asleep in in the cinema because it sort of induces this um, onyeric sort of dreamlike state that that I find um, incredibly beautiful and incredibly peaceful. Um, 
and I, 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 I would been talking a little while now so i'd like to hear what what georgia's experience was of, of watching the film because um i know i know that she hadn't seen it in its entire in in its entirety until now so i i'm really interested to hear what you made of it yeah thank you lillian um i mean yeah i i only seen parts of jean dorman um when i was doing my a-levels because we were we were studying um Sot ma vie which was Ackerman's um first short film I believe um and I remember at the time because I think I was about about 17 um and you know a little bit tired all the time from college so you know sitting down to watch a three-hour film you know it, it wasn't you know the the at the top of my list of things I wanted to do um so I think I got quite bored but um, Lillian's right in saying that watching it in a cinema is such a, it's such a different experience, and it's, um, it's it's so it's so much more immersive, not just because of the environment of being in a cinema, but because it forces you to engage with every single thing that's happening on screen in in a sensory way. Um, you know, there's you can't really go on your phone, or you know, go for a walk, and you know, as someone with with ADHD. I, you know, I did find that quite uncomfortable. And I'm not, you know, that's not something that's specific to this film. This is, you know, common with a lot of films that I watch. Um, but, I, yeah, I did feel at certain points I, it felt quite painful. But, you know, I think I think that's quite, a, you know, a clever thing for a film to be able to make you that uncomfortable by being, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not, a, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a boring film. I think it's it's just there's so much nothingness in it in terms of what we traditionally view as content that it makes us feel that there should be more when actually focusing on what's present you know there's something in that but I think the the sort of the boringness of gentleman's life and the nothingness you know of of the existence of the housewife it seeps into the audience's experiences as well. Like her boredom is our boredom and it's infuriating and it triggers, for me, almost this this need to to stim and to move around. And, you know, I felt self, quite self-conscious in the cinema because there were so many movements I wanted to do with my hands and all these things, but I couldn't do it because I felt so restrained by, you know, the environment. Um, and And you know what, I feel like that, actually added to my experience because I was I, I was almost feeling that that angst that was sort of building throughout the film over three three hours in a bit which is you know an incredibly long time um to be sat in a cinema um but yeah I think it's it's a it's such an interesting um you know use of of that amount of time I've always been quite vocal about I won't sit I won't sit down to watch a film that's three hours unless it's like Lord of the Rings. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I think, you know, there's a difference between, you know, a, a director being quite self-indulgent and saying, well, I'll just add everything because I can and people are letting me do that. Um, and then, you know, deciding, you know, I'm going to make an extremely long, boring film about a housewife and it to have this sort of visceral effect on so many audiences, um, for, for women especially, um, I think, yeah, it's quite fascinating. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wonder, 
I wonder if we can um, make some connections with that to um, to some of the things we've talked about before with routine, ritual, the kind of the frames of life that have appeared in other in some of the other films that we've looked at. I'm thinking this this film reminded me a little bit of our discussion of. Agnes, Agnes Varda's um, Gleaners, when we were mm. thinking about the sort of, you know, the way in which people had a rich, deep engagement with things rather than people. Um, and the, the, the way that that film and this one sort of forces, as you were saying then, Georgia, to sort of pay attention in a certain way to things that are, that, 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 that don't speak, but have a, nonetheless have a presence and are usually overlooked. Mm. And I was wondering if that was, that was part of a, a way in which we could describe an autistic sensibility to the film. I wonder what you both think of that. Is it to do with mm. an attention to things, to the non-verbal, to, to practices in which, um, you know, the, the, the kind of the sensory richness of an environment come to life because of the absence of, you know, the kind of the blanket of words that usually just mm. covers that over. Yeah, definitely. Um, one of the things that I really noticed in seeing it with other people in a quiet, still environment yesterday is how other people, and, and I say this is a sort of press screening room, um, largely filled with um, people who are very still. Um, and um, the ways in which you, I would start to notice, so I actually spent quite a lot of the film looking at other people and the way that they were responding to it, because I found, I find that kind of thing fascinating, especially when I'm so familiar with the film already, um, that when John Dillman drops something like a brush or um a piece of cut a cutlery or something people start people ju- just jump in the way that you one might a jump scare in a horror film um and i i just think that that's not something that a lot of people i notice would normally do in in the world but it's something that happens to me because those sounds and and sort of sudden sounds can be very um jarring and and that's the sort of hypersensory I suppose that's not a word, but um, where, where you, um, you're more aware of sounds and movements than um, neurotypical people sometimes would express themselves to be, and certainly not as sort of perturbed by them as I often can be. Um, but I, I was constantly told, oh, just ignore that noise or whatever it is. It's just uh, trying to articulate to someone how that's actually making me feel in a sort of visceral bodily level is, is really hard. So I think that watching this film, um, and it was quite strange actually, because the audio, the, the, it was this gorgeous um, restoration that they, that they have of, of the film, but the sound is still very sort of, uh, the audio track is still quite um, crackly and, and, and not cleaned up. I don't, I don't know enough about audio restoration to know what would be able to happen there, but I suppose it's something that I, I was particularly attuned to was the way that, the sounds sounded almost slightly muffled, um, and they, they they sounded very loud, but not clear. There was there was sort of there was a sort of um, thump to them in a way that I perhaps hadn't noticed in the film um, previously. But it's I, I I think that there are the, there are these things within the film that make me deeply uncomfortable. Um, not least in 
um, the cooking and food and autism is something that is um, has been much discussed and is something that I'm increasingly interested in because it explains my own relationship with, with food and and with being in sort of um, environments where people are eating or cooking and and the ways in which I've learnt to sort of be be comfortable with that and having my I'm very particular around the kinds of food that are prepared and 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 um, particularly around meat I cannot stand being around animal products in in in, in, in any form and I think it's partly a sensory thing because this isn't something that this is something that I've always had an issue with is is that is the sounds that like this when when um when Jeanne is sort of preparing her meatloaf with the uh, mince meat and she's putting eggs into it and it's 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 squelches of that um that moment is really intense for me and I find it absolutely sickening um in a way that it might not be for someone else but I suppose that's also um, <laughs> that that there's there is a there is a humor to that scene and there's a, there's a humor to a lot of the scenes where she's sort of um, pounding this uh, this this mince meat, no, especially knowing what's coming at at the end of the film. That those, those moments are do do have a certain humor to them, but at the same time, it's it was really strange, sort of being forced to engage in a way where previously, when I've seen the film, I might be able to sort of look away or not 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 fully or, or turn the sound down, which is just something that I, if I'm watching a film on my own the sound is not staying at one level throughout the entire film. It's, it's, I'm changing it constantly to make, to adjust it to what I feel comfortable with. Um, so yeah, I, I, I think you're right in, in terms of those sorts of, um, th- those routine ideas in a relation to autism, um, probably does have a different effect, but if anything, I think that what it's doing for people who, who aren't autistic is, is it's, it's giving a sense of, what that kind of overstimulation can feel like. Mm. Yeah, um, after uh, myself and Lillian watched the film yesterday, we had a discussion about the scene with the baby, Mm. which is both uh, absolutely hilarious. I think it's one of the funniest scenes of the film, but it's it's so difficult to watch just because, yeah, baby sounds are, you know... I mean, I I feel like this is not just an autistic thing. I think it's a collective thing that babies screaming is not a pleasant noise and um the way uh Jean Dillman deals with that is just by kind of provoking the baby and then giving up and sitting down and then going back to provoke the baby again and then sitting back down again until eventually she just gives up and leaves the room <laughs> um which is this sort of just detached I don't know interaction that I I don't know I found quite funny but I also I, you know, I could relate to it in some way because I do struggle to just kind of figure out what the pragmatic solutions for, you know, to get rid of these these unwanted sensory stimuli are, especially when it's, you know, it's an infant, um, you know, which are, requires attention and requires love. Um, and I think, I think one of the key things with that, I, I suppose, is that sort of restraint of... Um, I don't know really know what the word is, but like restraint of expression in a way. There's this thread throughout the film of, of you know, Jeanne Dillman is quite expressionless, but, you know, her expressionlessness expresses a lot. Um, and I think if we were to, you know, make make a link here, um, 
I think you could draw that with the idea of masking, especially with women. Um, I mean, I, in, in like I've said it in the cinema, I felt like I, you know, I was masking, you know, quite a lot because I was doing everything I could to not just walk around and jump about and start stemming and, you know, all of these things. Um, because, you know, that's not something that you're really supposed to do in a cinema. Um, and in a similar way, there's a lot of stuff that you feel that Jean Dillman can't really express because of the nature of her role in society and her role in her life and in her family. And then this culminates into a sort of... We've been sort of dancing around the topic of the ending, um, but <laughs> um, I, could, I could just go ahead and, and talk about it. Um, it ends in this, this scene of violence where um, she has a client um, and then very suddenly, without really any warning, she picks up um, some scissors and stabs him in the neck um, and then there's this very, very long sequence of her sitting covered in his blood. And and then the film just ends. And in a way, it's sort of, it's expected, even though it's a completely unexpected act of violence, because throughout this whole film, you're constantly thinking, when is something going to happen? When is When is something going to happen? There's moments where you feel like she's about to do something because I, I also, I guess I feel like in film, we're made to feel like something sort of out of the ordinary is going to happen because as the nature of, of films, we're, we're meant to feel stimulated in that way by things that are perhaps unfamiliar to us in our everyday life. For example, murder. Um, and I'm not saying, I'm not making a link, obviously, to autistic people wanting to murder people. That is not the link that I'm making. But, the, I mean... This repressed sort of um, sense of expression and anger that I think a lot of us are just incessantly masking often ends up in sort of like a, a like a manifestation of a meltdown. It certainly does for me, of just unwanted, unrestrained expression, um, stimulation that sort of builds up over a large amount of time. I usually find for me, my periods between meltdowns are, are quite quite lengthy because I, I there's this feeling of needing to repress that emotion and that, um, I suppose rage is the word because of just the need to sort of explode and let everything go. And the periods in between can be just quite, quite excruciating of not being able to... Um, to sort of flow with the world as I as I want to, and having to instead sort of completely restrain myself um, and and not you know stim in in lots of physical and figurative ways, um, and I suppose yeah there is something in that with the the life of of the housewife, in in that sense I don't know if that's too bland of a metaphor, <laughs> um, definitely not. I guess, well, maybe, maybe there's something in that for what Ackerman intended, but um, I, I feel like my experience in the cinema made me think about the film in that way. I, I think that's a really interesting take on on the character of Jean Dillman, that, that she's masking. Um, and that's why uh, there isn't a kind of reach into the psychology of the character because there is that mask. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of a chapter in uh, 
Julia Miela wrote us this book on autistic disturbances where um, she's talking about blankness and autism. And she, there's a chapter in here that's about Andy Warhol and the kind of the celebration of the surface and blankness. And it, it sort of has a similar feel to it, to a, what you were just talking about there, Georgia, about how um, autism might appear to the so-called neurotypical, the non-autistic um, reader or viewer um, as, as a blank space. But in fact, that's that's the effect of masking. Um, and that's, she has, you know, an interesting discussion about how that space is filled up with all sorts of projections and speculations about the autistic subject um, because of that, that, that perception of, of nothingness, as she calls it. Um, yeah, really, really interesting. I wanted to ask you both about how how you read that last act in terms of what came before it, right. because um, as you say, there's lots of humour. There are there are really funny moments in this, not least in the conversations with her son, um, and, and <laughs> the way in which there's a like the the edible nature of those exchanges. He's interested in his father, who's now dead. She doesn't really want to talk about it. When she does talk about it, she says, yeah, well, you know, my sister said he was ugly, you know, that I could have done better. Like, all we get is quite a lot of negativity about right. her her husband. Um, and then, you know, the next night, the son asks about the sexual relationship and his feelings about that, which that he wanted, you know, he called out to distract her to try and stop what he could hear or presume to be hearing. Um, that, 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 and all of the time, Jean Dillman is kind of closing down these conversations. It's kind of like, yeah, well, you know, time to go to sleep now. Um, he wasn't that bad looking. Um, similarly with, with the neighbour who brings the baby around for her to, child mind for an hour or something during the day you know we don't she keeps her on the other side of the door she's just nodding in response to the conversation that's made um and Ackerman keeps these people well not the son but the the neighbor and the men who come to visit her out of frame mostly they're framed rather beautifully you know we get to see see the the hands of the man as as he hands her his coat his scarf his hat um, but we don't get to see his face. We don't get to see the neighbour. We hear her voice, her account of what happens in the butcher's shop and so on. Um, so there's a way in which it seems that that we're, we we kind of stay with Dealman. We stay with her, 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 her frame of reference that these people are not really allowed in. You know, they're kind of slightly at the edges. Um, are we invited to to read a kind of ri rising tension in her world? Are, it, are there clues for what's about to follow? I wonder what you thought about that. Mm. You know, the one one of the um, um, things that I, I was I, I've been thinking a lot about, and 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 the, the sort of take on the film that I've been most intrigued and baffled by it because I've I've read so many different books and discussions of, the, of this film. One that one that I think sort of almost feels like a deliberate sort of Descent to some extent is from Maggie Nelson. I mean, maybe that's because Maggie Nelson likes to sort of <laughs> put a different spin on things. But in her, in her book, um, The Art of Cruelty, she talks about Jean Dillman as um, having this act of cruelty at the at the end of the film when when she stabs the client, um, and she says that this the the film is bad because for the preceding three hours and ten minutes there is absolutely no sign that that's where it's going to go, that, the, that this whole film is sort of just completely banal 
and then suddenly there's something. Um, I, re- I remember the um, at the BFI launch event last week, there was, um, they, they, when they announced the film, they showed a, a clip and it had some quotes from different critics. Um, and I, I forget who described it as this, but one of them said that um, the ending is like 20 Hitchcock films at once. <laughs> And it's just, I just think that's absolutely a, a baffling take. I suppose they, they probably included that um, because they're trying to think about how to sell this film to to a different audience, to a, to a new audience, and, and, and to sort of promise people that the ending will leave you absolutely sort of shocked. Um, I suppose rather defeats the point. The, the idea of this film is that you really don't know where it's going. Um, I certainly didn't the first time I saw it. And I, I, I suppose the problem with a film being 47 years old is that often that, that means that it, it is difficult to avoid spoilers or, or ruining where it's going because actually a lot of the film's um, greatness comes from that moment because without that moment, it would be a very interesting film, certainly, but it, it wouldn't throw up so many different ideas afterwards and make you immediately want to go back and watch this three hour and 21 minute film um which as I say I've seen many many times and every time I watch it I watch it in a completely different way um I think the first time I watched it I was so fixated on uh Jeanne's hands and what she's doing and the way that she's interacting with objects because that's there's a tactility to that which I and sort of certainly in a sort of sense of haptic cinema, which um, I, I find fascinating and is one that I sort of use a lot to try to express forms of empathy is 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 in is in um, a sort of tactile and, and haptic sense. Um, but why I've, I've I've increasingly done is is focus on 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 Jan's face and and Delphine Seyrig's performance because there's 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 Yes, it's masked, but there's an ability for one to project oneself onto her, which is what Chantal Ackerman wanted to happen. Uh, I mean, there's an extent to which Chandelman is based on her on her mother, um, and that there's an extent to which she's just sort of a representative of women in the 1970s and 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 a woman who either we know directly or are ourselves or at different points in our life we all do the things um that that Jeanne does <laughs> cooking and cleaning um and just sort of going about life and the way that thoughts manifest in those moments of silence and those moments of solitude that other we, other people can't read, but you can sort of project onto her at different points your own thoughts. So I mean, I certainly found this, and part of the thing, one of the things that I noticed being particularly amusing, seeing it again this week, was that every time she walks away from something towards the camera, there's an expression on her face, and she the way she sort of poses herself, she lifts up her shoulders slightly, and she sort of strides in her heels, which she wears at all times. Even her slippers are heeled, which I I, I think is absolutely hilarious. Um, she has this expression of sort of aloofness and rising above the people that she's she's interacting with, um, which I think is very funny. And I also think that it's one that <laughs> we all certainly feel at times when someone has done something particularly stupid or we've sort of suppressed um, our true thoughts 
about a situation. For example, the scene you were talking about when the, the, the neighbour is coming to collect the baby and she talks about buying, purchasing um, veal because the woman in front of her purchased veal um, even though she doesn't actually like it. <laughs> and John, who's this incredibly practical woman who, who would go about things meticulously, thinks that's just an absolutely baffling way to behave, yet we see her herself behaving in that way when she sort of suppresses things herself and doesn't say things particularly to her son Sylvan who um as you say is this sort of um baffling baffling character really I mean he he the way that he interacts with his mother is um very much sort of silent and then suddenly bursts into these these sort of philos- almost philosophical um musings late at night, just before they're about to go to bed, which is probably the worst time to begin a conversation. They'll have dinner in complete silence, and then he'll start saying that, um, in many ways, the penis is the sword which which, which penetrates. And th- these things that are, sort of seemingly come out of nowhere. I mean, th- if we're going to talk, if the ending doesn't maybe doesn't come out of nowhere. I think that there, and certainly there's a moment before she 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 picks up the scissors where you can see her making that decision that's quite a long shot in in that scene it's not sudden necessarily um but with those scenes it does seem to come from nowhere with the sun and i think the sun is a is a really fascinating character because he's the only other sort of major character um within the film so i'd i'd like i'd love to hear a a bit about about that I, i know that um we were talking a bit about him yesterday georgia yeah i mean it is is quite funny um, because they are they are sort of so alike, um, and I, I suppose there's like that that unspoken complacency in their silence. You know, I, I think Jean Delman is a woman of few words, and I think she's very comfortable with that. Um, and actually, the few you know being silent is extremely expressive. Like like we've talked about with the um, conversation with the. The woman who picks up the baby, which I think is Ackerman's voice. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Mm. Um, conversation with the woman. Um, she says absolutely nothing apart from you know um, a, a goodbye or whatever. And um, but even through that, we we know exactly what she's feeling. And I think it's yeah similar with the son as well. That sort of outburst of the, of of philosophical questions is met with. Um, a really straight up, um, uncensored, um, yeah, calculated answer, which is spoken in a straight paragraph <laughs> with no sort of expressibility. It says, "Oh, who is my father?" And she says, "Well, I met him then." Um, someone said, "My uh, he was quite ugly," um, and she just kind of keeps speaking it until the point has been made, and that is the end of the conversation. Just such a it, it is similar to her sort of methodical, um, no nonsense way of conducting her life in general, um, which is something that I, you know, I do relate to a bit because I, I, I've had a friend tell me before that the reason she likes organizing, going going out places with me is because I don't sort of, I'm not vague. I say, well, we're going to meet at this time, and this is what we're going to do, and that's the end of the conversation, and we don't have to make any more small talk because that is just what the plan has been made. And they said, I like that you're methodical about that because otherwise sometimes it just gets really weird and complicated. And 
I was like, well, you know, I don't mean to be like that. It just seems like the most natural and, and methodical and way to do it because I don't I don't like that small talk and you know the woman going on about the buying veal and then that leading on to her I, I can't remember what it was but it's, it's like her, her relationship with her husband and sort of trauma dumping on Jean right. just completely unprovoked that like annoyed me and I wasn't in the scene because you know when people do stuff like that I do get annoyed because I I find those sorts of interaction unprovoked interactions just completely unnecessary and infuriating um and I think um I think we we discuss what is it about the film that sorry there's lots of noise going on in my end um we've talked about what sort of provokes or if there's some kind of gradual build-up to what happens in the end and what, you know, if there's any signs. And I think it's the nothingness of it, the absence of signs that is the sign. Um, there's no, you know, clues that in a traditional sense, like narrative codes and and things like that. We feel like she should be doing something. She should be showing some sort of emotion. But the fact that she doesn't is is so much more interesting, I think. Because there's like you know an absence of something, and I'm not saying you know there's an absence of empathy or anything like that. Um, I think there is a lot in the nothingness, um, and then having very little other stimuli to focus in on, that is what we're focused on. We're fo we're trying to make this psychological connection with her because I think traditionally with cinema that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to connect, empathize become a character we sort of reflexively mirror ourselves in the character and I think it's it's difficult to do that with Jean Delman but also in, in a way it's not because I think her silence is is so it says so much I think I, I mean especially for me I, I think I, I could tell that something was going to happen but I wasn't but even it still shocked me even though I had a feeling um, this that that was what got me through the three hours, um, and yeah, I think like Lillian said before, if it was just a three-hour film about someone doing nothing, yeah, that would be a quite an interesting experiment. But it's that sudden outburst of violence that takes only you know that her considering doing it takes a while, but the actual act is only a few seconds in this huge runtime, and it it has, makes this definitive sort of mark. Um, it ties it together really well. If we we we're approaching this this scene from what you're saying there, Georgia, and mm. and I think it's literally it's something like the last ten minutes, isn't it? It's 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 mm. a really quite compressed, um, uh, you know, part of the film where we get this act and then mm. and then it it's over and, and as as you said, I think Lillian, that we we you know we're sitting with with her in the aftermath of that. Mm. Um, I think there were, there were a couple, there's a slight sort of build up around her frustrations. There are those small details like not being able to get the button. She goes from shop to shop. They haven't right. got the button to go on this jumper that her sister made that, you know, she's told to replace them. She goes to the cafe. She can't sit in her regular seat because someone's mm. sitting there. The the waitress who usually serves her is not there that day. So they're kind of like really what seem to be minor frustrations that, that are there in that day. Um, but not enough to kind of merit the stabbing of someone you would see. So, mm. so I, I guess we have to look to 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 the structure, the structural point of her situation. I mean, is and if we if we 
what is, I mean, a, a lot of the debate around feminism in this film has focused on how we interpret her relationship to, to sex work. Do we see it as a form of oppression or do we see it as a, a form of work like any other and a woman in control of her body um, outside of any systems of, of, of value and judgment? Um, I, I mean, I kind of tend towards the latter of those to think that it's it, it's it's her body. She she does what she wants. But I think there's I think that the film gives us a really interesting conundrum here because mm. it's not just that she you know she she's angry and she kills a client. Um, she has an orgasm. So we we've reached the point in the discussion where we've we've got to the orgasm at last. A bit like the film. Um, <laughs> what, how, how do you want to, how do, what do you make of that? Because it's a really interesting orgasm in itself that she, we kind of see her struggling kind of not to have the orgasm. It's a, it looks like it's, it's a, it's a moment in which we do see her being expressive. We do see her trying to, trying to contain something that is uncontainable and then it happens and she sort of half covers her face with the, with the bed cover uh, so that we can't, we can't actually see her in that moment. And the guy who is who she's having sex with is really quite like low key in his activity. You know, it's quite an interesting sex scene from that point of view. Um, so, yeah, well, I wondered what your thoughts. Mm. Um, I think that sex scene is probably the least sexy sex scene in cinema. I mean, <laughs> I think the first time I saw it, and even still... At the start of it, I think that the man that she's having sex with has fallen asleep and she's trying to push him off of her. It looks like it, it almost seems like she's almost panicking that this 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 man is sort of crushing her almost by lying on top of her. And it it sort of there, there's a certain sense, and I think I think this is something that 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 can make intimacy for autistic people quite difficult sometimes, is that something that feels absolutely okay one minute is absolutely not okay the next minute. Um, and, and sort of the closeness of bodies in that way can shift. And I think for when I was, when I've been watching that, that scene, that's almost what it looks like to me. But it's like, okay, this was fine a second ago, but now it's like, I'm panicking. But actually you realize that she's, she is, as you say, sort of either having an orgasm or faking an orgasm. I mean, the extent, the, ex the extent of that is, is, is perhaps unclear. I mean, especially in sort of her, post-coital dissatisfaction which is which is very obvious um you know th th this is her her work and her job and she, her, and she's getting paid to do this so there's an element of of performance to that and i i, I suppose delphine zayrig to some extent has said uh, particularly around that time when she's getting involved in um les um on smooth with Karu Rosopoulos, which is uh, another who's another um, filmmaker and Delphine Seyrig was making films with her in these these sorts of um, feminist films, um, taking interviews from the TV and intercutting them with with intertitles about misogyny. Um, around that time, Delphine Seyrig was also part of the manifesto of the Three Four Three, which was um, uh, women women in in France. Um, signing a petition for women who had had an abortion for abortion rights um, in France, and Agnès Varda's part of that, and she makes the film um, Le Chante uh, One Sings the Other Doesn't, all about the abortion movement, and turns it into a musical. Extraordinary film, highly recommend it if you haven't seen it. 
Um, so all of this stuff is sort of going on in the background, and Delphine Zarig is is associated with this movement. You know, Jean Delacroix could have cast um, a non-professional actor in that role, and often in these kinds of experimental, um, politically motivated films, you would cast a non-professional actor. You'd want someone who doesn't. So why why choose one of the most as you as you said in the introduction? She's been in films that Renee has made, and um, she's she, in the same year she was in India, song by Marguerite Duras, and um, another film called Aloise by Lillian de Kermadec, which seems to have just been lost to time. I have seen it; it's wonderful, but it's very very hard to get hold of a copy. Um, so she starts working with um, women directors in the mid seventies, sort of decides to move against that. So Chantal Ackerman casting her in this film is pointed and she's she's emblematic of of, of not just an older a, a version of sort of international cinema um, in the same way that Godard is doing in, in Le Mepri um, by casting people like Jacques Palance and Fritz Lang and Brigitte Bardot. They, these actors have the potential to sort of symbolise so much more and yet casting her in this role of this sort of generic housewife as, as an every woman is um, is pointed, and it, it it means that there's a certain star quality to her that a film like this might not otherwise have. So in that scene in the in in it, with in the bed, as we're talking about, is is about sort of um, the agency that women have at this point, and and women taking control of their own bodies, and that that sort of act of violence is emblematic of all of those political motivations that are going on in France um and in and in Belgium but but certainly in 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 France um in the 1970s and the wave at the second wave of feminism is manifesting itself um is is extraordinary and I I I I think that relating that to to autism um is 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 part of that 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 maybe there's even an even greater level of suppression of feeling unable to um, express yourself, express your desires, your needs to someone. It can make it very difficult to do that. Um, I, I, I certainly, certainly feel that way, and I, I think that in that scene, in the way that you contrast the the work that she's doing and the the lack of that being about her. Is, is related directly to the discussions that she has around her husband, that she feels like she doesn't want... When, when um, her son says, why didn't haven't you met someone else? Or her sister writes in the letter that it's been... Is it six years since since her husband had died? I think it is. Um, why haven't you found someone else? You're very you're very pretty. You you could easily find someone who, who uh, you could marry for love. And she says, I don't want to... It's it's too much effort to um, get used to someone again, and I think that that's an extraordinary thing to say. That it's it's not necessarily about sort of love at first sight in the way that her son sort of talks about it. In this sort of, uh, I mean, he he sort of memorizes Baudelaire poetry and and these very romantic ideas that he's sort of reading about and and interested in. And she says, well, these things happen over time and it's it's about sort of becoming comfortable with other people and that's not something that she's able to do in the nature of her work um which i do think relates to 
not not all autistic people, but I think I think that it's something that as an autistic person, it can be hard to get used to someone, and certainly it can be hard to um, get to a point where you're at a level of comfort with an individual to be intimate, or not just simply to be intimate, but to make that intimacy something about yourself and about your your own desires and and, and interests. Um, yeah, I think I think it's a that, that 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 maybe gets to the heart of what I think is so extraordinary about about this film and and something that um when people immediately put you on the spot and say what makes this film so great it's like oh, i'm going to start like offloading around around all of these different ideas that are there it's, it, it makes it a very difficult film to talk about but i i think i think that's probably if, if i had to say one one element of it that i find particularly powerful i, th- I think it probably is contained within those ideas yeah, absolutely. Like familiarity and routine is a huge integral part of the film. And I, I'm I'm glad, Janet, that you mentioned the, the scene of her going to the cafe, mm-hmm. returning to the cafe and seeing someone in her seat, because I actually, when that moment happened, it's such a small thing. It bet, you know, not many repercussions from that narratively, but um, watching that, I was just devastated. I was genuinely devastated for her because... There's, you know, when you have a routine and you have your your comforts and the things that you're familiar with that you know you have, the, and then that agency to have that comfort is taken from you. You know, you. I mean, some people might, you know, have the courage to be like this, can you please move? This is my seat. Which, you know, because, you know, obviously she doesn't own the table or the seat, but I think we we do have these things that are so are so important to us and they're such trivial things but they they make such a difference and they can trigger things like meltdowns you know for example i'm very um um controlling about food and things like that and i i'm i'm quite hesitant sometimes to have something that i'm not familiar with mm-hmm. um because i think there's that risk of um you know not enjoying it and then that triggering a sort of like a, a meltdown or some response like that and so, yeah, that moment where you just hear stop as she sees someone at the table and then decide to sit at the table next to her, um, I just, I felt that. I felt so horrible um, for her in that moment, even though it's such a such a trivial thing. Um, I think there's that balance of of having routine, but having agency within that routine um, to be assertive because there's there is that clockwork nature of of the clients that she sees you know she has one on the first day and then one on the second and one on the third um but i think what it reveals in the third is you know how little control she has of that that situation um and yeah i found i found the orgasm scene quite um puzzling just because i i wasn't sure if she was if she was having an orgasm or if she was struggling it was really difficult to 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 see like obviously this person was on on top of her so she couldn't really physically move that much um but to me it almost felt quite distressing um and that made that made me feel um really quite angry and and in a you know it it made me you know feel that something was coming you know like she was about to do this she'd finally had enough um um, and then, in a way, that ending is quite satisfying. Um, 
which is quite unusual when to see, you know, a murder in a film and feel completely satisfied by it. Mm. But I did. I thought, okay, finally, she's, she's, you know, this is her taking control. Just such an awful thing to say, but, you know, my, it, with my viewing experience and knowing that this is fiction, it was, um, it was a great, it was a great ending and I really enjoyed it. So, yeah, I think, um, the routineness was, was hypnotic as well as it was frustrating when, when, um, things didn't quite work out. And, and there was, yeah, I think also quite meditative with the, um, repetition there was moments where I did I did sort of start to drift off to sleep also because it was like the morning and I barely got any sleep but (laughs) I think I have a tendency to to sort of drift off in my thoughts as part of like a meditation practice I don't do the sort of typical mindfulness focusing on breathing I do one where I, I kind of allow myself to drift away and there were so many moments in the film where I could allow myself to just think about other things while still watching the film, and then there would be certain things that draw me back, um, and th- then I had that, you know, agency to do that. And I, but that it kind of stopped at thought. There's that I could think about whatever I wanted to, but I couldn't do anything with my body or with my hands. That was the thing that really, um, not distressed me in a sort of a physical, a negative way, but it it made me feel really um, anxious, which for me. Uh, in a, when I'm watching a film, anxiety isn't always a bad thing. You know, I've had panic attacks during films and I don't really see them as really awful, terrible things because, you know, it, the film has triggered something. Um, and for, you know, for other people, it can be a very horrible experience, but I don't know, feeling that provoked by a film um, is something that's quite transcendent for me. So the, the fact that that made me feel so angry at points um i think is really special i really like that about the film that's those are really wonderful thoughts um it's it's really interesting listening to you both of you talk about the kind of physical experience of being in a in the cinema with this film um i wish that i'd been there too um I've, i guess we should probably come wrap up our discussion um soon There's one last thing that I wanted to mention, which was sort of coming from a a queer angle, that there's something about Ackerman that I'm really grateful for Mm. around sexuality and queerness. And I I think it's there in this film where we, we, you know, she talks about her work as autobiographical. She was was very open in her life about her, the closeness to proximity to her mother emotionally, um, when her mother died, her sort of her sense of a loss of focus in in her world, um, and and of course her her own death not long after that. But there's there's a way in which sort of you know the in the world of heteronormativity, the Oedipal complex normalizes the father daughter relationship, the mother son relationship. That's sexualized. That's fine. In whenever it's the other way around, whenever it's you know a different crossing, a different pairing. Um, there's a sense of like, you know, daughter-daughter, father-son relationships not being allowed, but there's a taboo around thinking about those being sexualized. And I think in Ackerman's work, we get a really strong sense of, of a sexuality that is outside of that 
parameter of you know heterosexual identification relating across normative lines and and I think that the sex work for me operates within that you know it might be something that she has to do but it's not necessarily where her her kind of her you know her locus of her her own sexual desire or range of different desires might might reside but she doesn't back away from from thinking from acknowledging you know there are there is there is sexualization between adults and their and their children and we get that in her discussion with her son too so i think i'm sort of grateful for her her the forcefulness with which she will have that in her films and in her life yeah definitely um and i completely feel the same way i mean certainly sort of the the for me for me and sort of in terms of of queerness as well it's like um the sort of what i was talking about like sort of the way that men can can be a stifling presence um in a way that being with around and with women isn't um and i I think that ackerman cinema is something that that really sort of helps me to understand that and and see that that, that there is there is a, the, this extraordinary contrast between the, the relationship relationships between between women and 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 more sort of heterosexual relationships and and as you say there's sort of really Jeanne is is breaking out of that that mold in this film i mean my my favorite ackerman film i, I Voted for Jean Dillman as as the greatest film of all time, but I did I, my favorite um, in terms of the film that I get I get the most out of that she made is um, Les Rendezvous d'Anna, which she makes um, what three years after this one I think in nineteen seventy eight um, with Aurore Clément as 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 Anna who is a who's um, a sort of development really on on Jean Dillman. She's sort of almost like the daughter to um, Jean Dillman. Um, and she's she's a filmmaker and she's it's probably Ackerman's most autobiographical film after the, the sort of documentaries of things like News From Home and um, No Home Movie, which is her, her last film, which is absolutely extraordinary. And I, I think as a, a sort of um, counterpoints to and extensions of Jean Dillman, those are things very much worth worth watching, um, as, as well as her memoir, um, Mamérie or um, My Mother Laughs, which I think has been translated into English now um, and published by Silver Press. And these these are texts that I'd very much recommend to to, to people um, listening if they want to sort of explore beyond Jean Dillman now that now that it's sort of um, um, in in a certain spotlight. But Anna is is a film which where those relationships with men are particularly shown to be unsatisfying or something that um Ackerman is gesturing away from and and it's it's so interesting really this past week seeing Ackerman sort of begrudgedly talked about really I mean all of the news articles have just described her as a, a um a woman or 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 just simply as female director um which I, I find um extraordinary I mean the B- B- the BBC put out an article that said um <laughs> film directed by Jean Dillman wins the the poll <laughs> I mean this is this is the extent of knowledge that there is around who Chantal Ackerman is in in sort of um the mainstream um and 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 it does sort of amuse me that it, that it's sort of attracted this kind of attention in a way that <laughs> Ackerman would never have wanted. I, I'm I'm sure of it. I'm quite certain of that. Um, but her queerness isn't something that I've seen mentioned at all within that framework. You know, the fact that 
this the the greatest film of all time isn't just by a woman but but, but by a queer woman by mm-hmm. by a lesbian it is, is 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 absolutely extraordinary and so hopeful and optimistic for me in the way that we talk about cinema and the way that we look at cinema and feeling that these films which mean so much to me are you can't just dismiss people for feeling that way. I mean, a lot of the, the discourse around this poll is is around Portrait of a Lady on Fire coming in 30th place. It's an incredibly important film to me. And to, when I first saw that film, um, I had an extraordinary experience and it was one of the films that really made me sort of start to understand my own queerness in a, in a way that I hadn't really thought about before. I mean, we, we talk a lot on this podcast, and we use this podcast to talk about autism and the way that films can help us to articulate and understand autism. But, you know, there's a, there's another whole podcast that I mean, other people have these podcasts. I have one my, my, myself around sort of using films as a way of understanding queerness. And that that's certainly one of the films that, that, that gave that to me. And I think for Ackerman cinema is intimately connected to that. So yeah, thank you for, for, for mentioning that Janet, because I, I, I think it's, it's such an important dimension that even within a film that absolutely is not explicitly queer, right? There's no, there's no sort of um, uh, queer relationships explicitly shown within this film, but there is. But reading queerness within it is 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 to some extent um, connected for me to to reading a, a, an autism within within the film. I yeah, I completely echo that. I think also the fact that going back to the sight and sound poll, um, Jean Dillman's sort of triumph over Vertigo, which has you know traditionally been at the top of all these polls for some reason. Um, I think, you know, as like a as a queer filmmaker, that is, it's such a it's such a win, and it's satisfying and it's hopeful because Vertigo is a film about the the mystifying nature of women. And the this this um, Freudian inability to to decode women, whereas John Delman is 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 a sort of reverse, sort of an una reverse card of that. It's this sort of complete and utter dissatisfaction with with men um, and with the world that with the box that a lot of women are placed into, which is sort of you know a broad overused metaphor, but I think it's it's quite relevant. That sort of repression of being depicted as this mystery um, figure um, and instead, you know, exploring women's pleasure, uh, women's agency um, through all these things such as sex work and um, uh, routine uh, motherhood. Um, this And this, there's so much in there that it's absolutely contradictory to a film like Vertigo um, and the fact that it, you know, and this isn't just, you know, a poll that, you know, people like Paul Schrader have said is is a reflection of sort of, you know, the woke new cinema, which is, you know, something they almost verbatim that he said on his Facebook. Um, <laughs> this is something, you know, that people voted for. And now that the Sight and Sound um, Critics poll is hearing from a lot more uh, women uh, and people of colour, women of colour, queer people, um, we're getting this better depiction of of what people consider to be great in film um, especially to do with gendered um, representation in cinema and I think this is such an amazing um, result and I think for me personally as someone who who wants to 
to create stories like this and to um, express my own point of view uh, cinematically. I think it's really um, it's really encouraging, really hopeful. Um, yeah, basically echoing everything you've both said. <laughs> oh, well, that sounds like a really good note to end on. Um, how brilliant to counterpose that to Hitchcock. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Oedipal classic text that we were all meant to have been interpolated by, but eclipsed by Ackerman. Thank you also, Lillian, for your extensive knowledge as ever, um, but particularly of Ackerman's other films here, which I haven't seen, and Maggie Nelson's The Art of Cruelty, which I've just pulled off my bookshelf. <laughs> um, I love Maggie Nelson's work mostly, but I couldn't get on with this, but I will look at the... Uh, the part of this that is about um, Jean Dillman um, when we finish. Brilliant. Well, thank you both for today. It feels like we should actually have had a discussion that would last the same amount of time as the film. <laughs> Test our listeners. Just, make, just make the viewers completely uncomfortable to the point of violence. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got it. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess we should finish up here. So thank you both. And... Um, Yeah, we'll be back soon. Bye. Goodbye. You have been listening to the Autism Through Cinema podcast, brought to you by the Autism Through Cinema project from Queen Mary, University of London, and The Wellcome Trust. Big thanks to Leverett Jakes for editing this episode. Our theme song is Waterfall by Meter, used under a Creative Commons attribution from Null Teal Records. Follow us on Twitter at Autism Cinema and find out more about the project on autism-through-cinema.org.uk. If you have any feedback, comments or suggestions for future episodes, please do get in touch with us on cinemaautism at gmail.com. Many thanks for listening.